there are ingredients and there are recipes. And a lot of people get good results because they have the right ingredients, but they don't have the optimal recipe. And so they think they're better than they are because they are getting results and they have the right ingredients. But sometimes you need a little bit more salt, a little less sugar, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that to have it be closer to ideal. This is The Tournament Code. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Ben. We know a little bit about you, but for our audience that doesn't know about you, tell us your background and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so I was working in sports training as a general rule for a long time, years and years ago. I live in New Jersey, so I wouldn't call it a golf mecca by, by any stretch of the imagination. And, and I was working with athletes of all different sports. And I still work with athletes, you know, primarily golf and hockey at this point, but I was working with athletes of all sports. And what I quickly realized is, man, there's not a lot of professional athletes that live in New Jersey. I'm a pretty old guy. So, you know, even from a training perspective, you know, we're talking about like 1990. So a long time ago and like sports training and all this stuff really wasn't a thing. I was kind of one of the pioneers doing it. And I, what I quickly realized, like I said, is that there are not a lot of pro athletes. And I was like, OK, well, I can work with college guys. That'll be great, too. And then I was like, well, ooh, they're only home in the summer, so maybe that's not a great business. And then I was like, okay, I can get some kids and like high school guys. And I was like, all right, well, that helps a bit, but like that only starts at 3.30 in the afternoon. And I was like, man, how am I going to make a living training athletes? And I really wasn't interested in like the typical trainer job, which back then there really, really wasn't even a typical trainer job. But like, you know, just having, you know, a bunch of businessmen or housewives or whatever trying to get fat off their butts or whatever like that didn't interest me so i was like well who can i work with who have a passion for what they're doing have like an actual functional sporting type of objective and a those things and then b can actually afford to pay me what i want to charge to doing it so i can have a family and support my family and what i quickly realized is hey like country club sports is a pretty good place to go, like golf and tennis and that stuff. So I approached a local, one of the high-end country clubs by here, Plainfield Country Club, which is, you know, has hosted the Barclays and other events as well as part of the FedEx Cup. And I approached the guy who was the head golf professional there. I was like, hey, you know, if you're interested, I'd love to be able to train you and help you out with your golf. Don't worry, I won't charge you anything. You come check it out. And if you like it, you can refer some of your people to me. Right. So, you know, he kind of gave me a look like, what do you know about golf that I don't? I'm a golf professional. Who are you? And but he gave it a shot. And within the first 30 minutes, he was like, oh, my God, I don't know anything about working out. Right. So that worked really well and helped me get people. And then ultimately that relationship and some others rolled me into my first tour player, which I was probably I don't want to say the first, but certainly maybe the first. I was work started my first tour player in 1998. So I've been doing this a really long time time and i basically got into it because it was a business requirement i needed to fill up my day with people who could pay and then golfers were like so passionate it's like you know i would go to let's say work with some players and i'd go to the players championship and i would come home and they'd be like oh i remember playing that sawgrass in 1991 and on the fourth hole i would hit this shot i was in the rough and it's like holy cow these guys can remember every single shot they hit Man, what a passion. I mean, I love these guys, right? Like they were so into it and they had this incredible passion and they really wanted to get better at golf. And many of them obviously had back pain, couldn't hit it far, all of the issues that we still deal with obviously today from a golf fitness perspective. And all of a sudden I was helping people get better really fast. And from there it just kind of exploded. And I really love the science of it because golf happens to be one of the sports that we have the most science for because it's the easiest to study. You stand still, you go when you want, the ball's not moving, like it's pretty easy. Most sports are really, really dynamic in their nature. And golf, you put the ball down, you stand, your feet don't move and you go when you want. Pretty easy to start looking at force plate data and 3D data and all kinds of information. Obviously along the way, we ended up with launch monitors and all that kind of stuff. So we had this ability to really understand what good players were doing. And there was lots of research on it. Not like now it's all public knowledge. You'd have to go read journals back then. And I was kind of like a nerdy guy. And I would call up people who did research and be like, hey, I read your thing in this journal. And you would be, you know, back then, especially 
since nobody read those journals, right? You called up someone on the phone and told them you cared about the research. They couldn't be more excited to hear from you and tell you everything they've ever learned about biomechanics of the golf swing or whatever, right? I mean, back in the day, it was guys like me and Greg Rose, and there was a handful of us. There was a guy named Chris Welsh in New York, and there was a handful of us doing this, but really not too many people in the whole world doing it. And it all just kind of, as I learned and I got better, I was like, okay, well, what exercises can I do to apply with, to what this guy is saying? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden I was able to make real change in how people swung, their speeds, their mobility, blah, 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 all the stuff. And I was off and running. You said that it was a while back that you got into this and you, you were mentioning the nineties there. And it was interesting what you said about that head pro that you worked with, because especially back then from my understanding is golf fitness was not necessarily in vogue, at least maybe it was just starting to come about, but it was something you kind of had to do on your own. What, what sort of things were you doing at that time to convince like that head pro that, Hey, not only is this good for you physically, it'll be helpful as to your golf game in whatever facets are necessary. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if I, I personally compelled him enough, to be honest, but I actually had one or two clients that I was working with that were members at his club. And I helped them get better. And they're like, oh, we should introduce you to the, our head pro. He's a workout nut and obviously plays a ton of golf. I think you he would really enjoy what you're doing. So they kind of made the connection for me. And he actually ultimately made me my connection to my first tour player. That player was... They were he he was being coached by a guy named Simon Holmes back in the day. And Simon Holmes was one of the very first teachers at the same time as Mitchell Spearman under Ledbetter back in the day. And Simon was a pretty good player himself. He had gotten an injury in his wrist and he had asked Led, hey, you know, for some lessons and stuff to make some money while I can't play. Can I pick the range? Blah, blah, blah for you. And he did. And then ultimately he actually started becoming a teacher for Led. And he ended up with a bunch of tour players on the European tour. And this pro that I was working with locally, the head golf professional at the club, also took lessons from this Simon Holmes. And they were both down in Florida one week practicing, taking lessons, doing a little golf camp down there with Simon. And it was a rainy day. And the guy's like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym since we can't go to the course and work out, my guy. And then Robert Carlson, who was my first player, uh, people know the big Swedish guy, he was my first client. And so Robert says to him, he's like, oh, maybe I'll go to the gym with you also. And so they go to the gym and Robert sees all the stuff he's doing and is like, what's all that stuff you're doing, man? Like, I've never seen any of that kind of stuff before. And he's like, oh, I work with this guy, Ben, up in New Jersey, whatever. And he was like, well, can we call him? Can he come down and work with me? And he's like, I don't know. Call him on the phone. So they called me up and basically they were like, can you come to Orlando? I was like, well, if you're buying, I'm flying. And, you know, <laughs> then all of a sudden, bang, you're on your way. I'm flying to Florida. And then off and running. And that's, that was 1998. Uh, so a long time ago. Were some of those first training programs still things that you implement today or has that changed over time? Well, I, I would still say there's probably elements that are still there, right? You know, but obviously we've evolved. I mean, hopefully you're evolving and learning and trying to get better and improving within what you do. But certainly I think some of the core principles that we were using back then really haven't changed all that much. Maybe how we apply it. We've had advancement in technology. We've had advancement in different types of training equipment. There's been obviously other things that allow us maybe to do it better, more efficiently, et cetera. But I think the core concepts are still the same. And um, let's follow up on that. What are some of those core concepts that you focus on? Yeah, so I, I, I'm a big believer. You know, I think if, when you talk to Greg tomorrow, he's a big like mobility, stability, strength, power guy. I'm a big believer, and, and I don't disagree with what they're saying from that perspective, but my experience has shown me that most people's mobility problems are really start with stability. They're unstable and their body tightens up to protect them, right? The exact classic example I give is if I said to you, okay, let's go for a run, and you're running along the street and you're moving great, it's the middle of the winter, and then there's a pond and you're going to hit the ice. You're going to keep running the same way or is your body going to get really tight and really stiff and lock itself down to protect against the instability, right? So a lot of our tightness is a protective mechanism against instability. So when I gain the stability and the neural system says, okay, you're safe, everything is good, nothing bad is gonna happen to you. It allows you to move freely, allows you to have more range of motion and allows you to increase velocities of movement. So, you know, while I 
follow that same mobility stability, I would say that my focus really starts for most people more so on the stability end. I want to know that you have control over the movement you already have, right? That's the most important thing to me. You have X around a range of motion. Do you have good control of it? Because, you know, we see a lot and, you know, this is not picking on women. It's just is what it is. But like you see a lot of women who have massive range of motion. But you look at their club at the top, it's kind of falling down. It's not really rigid. They have a hard time changing direction really effectively and quickly and explosively, right? So they have plenty of mobility, but they don't have stability, right? So my whole thing is whatever motion you have, the first thing I want to know is how well can you control what you have? And then from there, I could say, okay, well, you have good control of this. Well, if you are stable with what you have, and it's still limited, well, then I'm going to go start looking at mobility. Is it a tissue issue, a joint issue, a capsular issue, whatever the case may be, fascial, whatever? Or a lot of times when you look at people and how they move within what they currently can do, they're not stable. And once you give them stability, the range of motion opens up automatically by itself. What sort of testing did you do to see where students were back then? And has that changed to now? Yeah, I think it's become a little bit more specific now but i think again like i said you know I, we're still dealing with the human body our core principles of the human anatomy and biology and all that stuff you know it, it, it evolves very slowly <laughs> let's say right so those core principles are basically the same what we do is get better at understanding the specific requirements of people and then our testing can also become more specific whether it's you know, now we're using force plates now, you know, and I can look at how you decelerate or break a force or control a force through a graph, right? Versus doing it slow through like, just say an exercise type of movement assessment, right? The challenge with traditional movement assessment is it happens very slowly, right? And so I might be able to control or do my TPI screen or, or whatever, great, at really slow speeds, but then when I put you under dynamic motion and you're swinging a driver that's 40 whatever inches long and I'm swinging at 110 miles an hour, well, do I have the stability to control that, right? So a lot of people, what I learned is like, they were stable in our fundamental movement assessments, but they were unstable when we added high velocity and bigger load to the movements, right? So Pete, there were things being lost in translation because you think, oh, this person passed my assessment, they're good to go. And then you watch them swing and you're like, man, there's a disconnect here. Like, why, why do I see what I see when they just did this screening and they seem so great? The reality is, well, they're stable under low load and low velocity. And under high load and high velocity, they're not that stable, right? So I think the evolution of it, the technology has allowed us to kind of take those baseline exercise type assessments and then plug them into dynamic movement, like I said, whether it be looking at 3D, force plate, whatever the case may be. And then we can start understanding what happens when we add those other variables to the equation. It's not just this slow controlled thing. If someone's a listener to this podcast and they've listened for a while, they know that they have the idea of what a workout looks like. Generally speaking, we've talked with different fitness trainers who have different methodologies as far as what things look like. As you mentioned, some people might be more leaning towards what we would call mobility work. And this was especially in vogue when I was in college back in 2015 was a lot more corrective exercises. And then some people lean towards doing lifts, compound lifts, things of that nature and moving heavy weight around. And I know with each student, there might be a different emphasis, but generally speaking, could you walk us through your methodology as to what a workout looks like for a student. And let's say they have an hour to work out what that looks like. Yeah. So I think what you said, like it is different. It's always, you know, these type of questions are always like, you, know, you always hate to say, well, it depends, right? I mean, like, and that is always the answer. And that's a truthful answer. So I, when people say that, that's actually honest. And the people who say it doesn't depend or give you a clear cut, this is the answer. That's actually foolish, right? Because it does depend. So let's just talk about in general, like the concepts you talked about, right? The corrective exercise, let's call that on one end of the continuum. Let's call compound lifting, big lifts, multi-jointed, whatever, almost to the end of the other end of the spectrum. But then you also, it depends on how you look at the spectrum, right? I'll call that the high force end of the spectrum. There's also a high velocity 
end of the spectrum where you're talking about speed sticks, plyometric exercises, med ball work, explosive stuff, right? So I don't know that I necessarily define one of those harder than the other. For some people who are strong and slow, speed work might be really hard for them, right? Some people are fast and weak, the heavy compound lifts might be hard for them, right? I think that most people, and, I, and I'll say this, I'm not on any of those spectrums. I believe all of those things have a time and a place. And that's where the it depends part comes in, right? If I just move terribly, then maybe doing a bunch of corrective exercises is going to be important. That being said, oftentimes when you approach it through a corrective tissue, stretching, corrective exercise, foam rolling, whatever model, some basic strength work also helps in that process to clean some stuff up, right? Some people be poorly because they're just flat out weak, right? And their muscles just aren't doing a good job of allowing them to move effectively. So even if I'm on that corrective end, I might not get crazy with the strength stuff, but I still probably have a basic strength program of some simple push, pull, you know, horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical, you know, whatever, hip dominant, knee dominant type of stuff that we're doing in our strength program. Because I do want to see, or I believe that for most people, at least getting some of those fundamental strength things in place will help speed up the corrective exercises benefits, right? And then we get, like I said, then we can get all the way down the continuum into looking at plyometrics and speed and sports specific application, right? Then there's the people who say, there's no such thing as sports specific, right? Only thing that's specific is playing golf. Well, yes and no. And while that's true, right? It, there is a thing called the said principle in strength and conditioning. And said, like the word said, S-A-I-D stands for specific adaptation to impose demands, right? So it's, and it's not a theory. It's not the said theory. It's the said principle, it's a fact, right? And that says that the more specific the movement pattern, the better the transfer is gonna be. Do I believe it's as good as practicing golf? No, I'm not an idiot. I mean, obviously there's no substitute for playing golf, right? I mean, golf is the best way to get better at golf. But do I do believe that if you understand how to do sports specific work, and that doesn't mean it looks like golf, I'll give an example in a minute, right? But I do believe sports specific, does help you transfer what you're doing from the gym to the course. Where I think if you just do deadlifts and squats and bench press and all that stuff and you get stronger, yeah, you potentially might get some increased club head speed and some of that stuff. But I think it could be whatever. Like just use somebody maybe who slides too much as an example, right? In their golf swing. And I'm not going to do something that looks like golf at all, but maybe I do a lateral bound, which is like jumping laterally from one leg to the other. And maybe what I do is I jump from my right leg to my left leg. And the first thing I have to do is just break it and dead stop. Right? So this is specific to that person who can't break the lateral sliding. I obviously have to know ahead of time that they have enough internal hip rotation to actually do the breaking in the golf swing. But once I go, oh, they have enough hip rotation to actually do it. They're not sliding because they're running out of joint space. They're sliding because they're actually not strong enough to break the forces when that club comes whipping down. So I can do a lateral bound and have them stick it and freeze as a step one. And then what we know is that real breaking of laterals is actually by overwhelming the laterals with vertical force, right? So you actually, you're moving to your left and then you push up and that upward pushing is what actually stops you from continuing to move towards down the target line, right? So I might take that lateral bound to my left leg and stick. And then once I feel like they have control of that, I might say, okay, now you're gonna bound and then turn that into a single legged vertical hop. And so now I'm adding the vertical, the, the lateral breaking with a vertical component. Well, now I'm doing sports specific. It doesn't look anything like golf, but that is specificity to the task for that person who has enough internal hip rotation, but is still sliding with their golf swing, right? So I, I believe it's a massive continuum. And I think that anybody who tells me or believes that they're doing as good a job as they can by just picking to be somewhere on the continuum or that one of these things is as good as doing the whole continuum and figuring out where the person belongs on that continuum and then moving them through it is better. If you tell me that just lifting heavy is better than doing that, I'll say bull crap. You tell me that just doing, you know, corrective exercises, I'm going to say bull crap, right? Like, don't, I mean, I've been doing this. I probably have trained more golf hours than anybody in the world. And I mean, of everybody 
from little kids to moms to corporate executives to world number ones to major champions, you name it. I literally was started doing golf training in 1991. I mean, there are probably no one who has literally trained more golf training hours in the world than me. I mean, and if there is, it's one or two people. It's not 50. It's a very short list. So I've played around with all these ideas. I've made lots of mistakes. I've done it wrong. I've done it better. I'm sure there's still better than I'm doing it now that hopefully I will get, continue to improve and, and do better as I go forward. But, uh, you know, the problem with like research is like someone will say, oh, well, we did vertical jumping and squatting and their club head speed went up. Well, okay, great. I'm not saying that's not valuable. But does that mean it's as good as if you did that plus some rotary work on a flywheel? If you did both of them, would that be better? I'm going to say, yes, it is going to be better, right? So I'm not saying that what you did is unimportant. It's, you know, the, the famous saying is there are ingredients and there are recipes. And a lot of people get good results because they have the right ingredients, but they don't have the optimal recipe. And so they think they're better than they are because they are getting results and they have the right ingredients. But sometimes you need a little bit more salt, a little less sugar, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that to have it be closer to ideal, right? So that's where I think a lot gets lost is in this recipe part where I think a lot of people have really cool ingredients. When you take a, a tour player, for example, and you start working with them, how do you evaluate their strengths and weaknesses? How do you set new goals for them? And then how do you put it together an action plan in order for them to reach those goals? Well, it depends, <laughs> uh, right? Like it, it does depend, right? Because different guys have different needs. Like I have tour players and a lot of tour players are like, have almost like the flexibility of a woman. Like they're almost like hypermobile. They move incredible. And then I have one of my tour players now who moves is pretty tight. Like he actually does need no bit mobility work and he does need that. I have other ones who it's like I'm rehabbing a player right now who, you know, was number 10 or 11 in the world before he got hurt. I, I just started with him in August and he hasn't played since last June, but he had been doing all the therapy work and everything he was doing was driven around increasing mobility. I've taken away all of his mobility work only giving them stability work and he's getting better super fast, right? So understanding A, what they're trying to do in their swing, B, what they're trying to just do, you know, do they need more speed? Do they not need more speed? Is there positions within their swing that they're not getting into? Is there issues with sequencing and timing of their biomechanics? Are there issues with their ground forces? So that's one piece, right? Then the other one is what does the physical assessment show us? So do we find areas that are weak or not mobile enough or unstable or whatever, right? So then we have that piece. Then we have the actual practical piece, which looks at, you know, you know, in the motor learning world or in learning world, you know, in whatever, what are our environmental constraints? Well, what type of gym do you have? How, you know, how many days a week do you have to give to it? How much time per session? You know, those obviously things are also part of it. I have guys who love being in the gym and they'll spend two hours a day, five days a week. I got other guys that want to do 45 minutes three times a week, right? So how I'm going to put their programs together is also based on practicality, right? I think too many people want to build their program in this ideological world where the ideological world is really based around these other constraints that we're dealing with with the player, right? Like, are they going to go five days a week? Are they going to give you enough time? You know, and then you have to create a hierarchy and say, okay, these three things are the most important for this guy because he's only going to give me 45 minutes, three days a week. Oh, well, this guy's going to give me five days a week, two hours at a time. Man, let's, we're going to get, you know, on Mondays, we're going to do these three things. On Tuesdays, we're going to do these things. Wednesday, we're going to come back to the Mondays or whatever. You create some cycling or, you know, micro and macro cycles that you work within that allow you to get a lot done more effectively. So, you know, it's never simple. Then also when you're working with golf, it's going to change a little bit this year, but obviously going forward, but like what time of season is it, right? Because we obviously, unfortunately on the tour, we don't have much off season. You know, in the old days when I was working with players, like I was working with Luke Donald, I still work with Luke, but I mean, working with Luke when he was number one in the world, we had 12 weeks off at the end of the, after tour champs. And he could throw away his sticks for four weeks. You know, he would take a week or two off. I would come in, we'd do our evaluations and we had 12 weeks to train like, super hard with no 
impact on him. He's not going to have to get on the road. He's not traveling. There's no tournaments. There's no scores. There's nothing to worry about. Like we were able to really create a big priority on our fitness and really dig in hard. Where now you're like, you're lucky if you get three, four weeks. It's just a totally different animal, unfortunately, that we have to deal with. And, you know, and a lot of people like to, when we see injuries with players, you know, a lot of people want to blame exercise, which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. You know, you know, some people will say it's the swing, it's whatever. You know, I think one of the big things that no one wants to talk about is where's the offseason, right? Every other sport, these guys get months and months just to let their body heal and recover and train and build up and become more resilient and all of these things. We haven't had that in golf for years now. And I think part of it is just the constant wear and tear of these guys with no downside. You know, originally when they started, when they switched the rules where the season used to end, obviously, at tour champs, and this year it did again, but before this year, when they had switched the rules and made those fall series so important for FedEx points, you know, a lot of the original top players, like back then, like I think it was like 2012, maybe 13, a lot of top players are like, well, I'm just not going to play in the fall anyway. And then Jimmy Walker would go out and win two, three times in the fall, and he'd be so far ahead of FedEx points. Guys were like, holy cow, man, I can't take this off because I'm going to fall so far behind. The season's gone before I even get started. So it's like it just created this problem in the golf world that impacts how we train, how we prepare, how we rest, how we recover, how we do all of these things. So, again, like you have to be specific to the player. And like a lot of us, you know, like, again, I've been working with Luke since 2009, but I have another players that I started with in April. So also, like, where do you jump in and you jump off with these people? And depending on where you are within the seasonal cycle is going to dictate how much you're going to do, how fast you can do it. You know, and my belief is these guys' swings are so sensitive. I also don't want to change them fast. You know, I, I talk to these guys about, like, when I'm going to work with you, I want to peel the onion one layer at a time. Right. History has shown us that players that try to change their body and or their swing too fast, nothing good comes from that. They play terrible golf. Right. So it's like I want to change your body if we're starting in season so slow that you don't feel anything changing in your swing, even though it is maybe getting a little bit longer, getting a little bit faster. Like you don't feel like anything has changed. I mean, you look at Duvall, you look at Carl Peterson, you look at guys in the past who have lost tons of weight and done all this stuff. They just lose their swing. You can't lose 50 pounds in four months or three months and think, oh, you're going to go back and play the same golf. It's just, you know, form dictates function. And when you have a totally new form, the function is going to change also. So, you know, we have to be careful about having a model that says this is what you do because there's a lot of personality elements too, right? Like even how hard you push someone. I have clients who if they're not sore and they don't feel like they just killed themselves in the gym, they think it was a terrible workout. But that same exact feeling for someone else, they're calling all their friends and bad-mouthing you, telling you that, they, that you injured them with the exact same feeling, right? So, you know, real program design has a lot more than exercise science involved in it. There's a lot of psychology, there's a lot of motor learning, there's a lot of different constraints we're dealing with. There, all of these things go into designing a good program. And that's what makes it so complex. And that's why I think there's so few really, really, really good trainers out there. Not saying there are none, but I think the list is a lot smaller than you think. One of the things that's interesting about working with pro athletes from an outsider's perspective, and that'd be for the layman, I think a lot of people think that these guys have it down to a science, whatever it may be, but especially something like fitness, et cetera. And I know from NFL athletes and NBA athletes, a lot of them are just like us in the sense that they're human too. And especially NBA players on the road, they'll eat whatever, whatever gets put in front of them and whatever they can find. And a lot of like things in this nature realm of diet, et cetera, are not necessarily the most refined, not because they don't necessarily know better, but because they can get away with it or something like that. What do you do with players? It sounds, and I know you work with them fitness wise. Is there anything diet wise that you depend again, depends on what the player is trying to do, but all things being equal, let's say you have a player come to you. They're at healthy weight. They are not necessarily trying to put on put on weight per se. They're just trying to make a gradual change over the course of a season that anybody might want to, which would be getting a little bit stronger, 
while retaining mobility. What sort of general diet guidelines are you recommending to them? So number one is I do everything. I do the strength and conditioning. We're monitoring sleep. We're doing, I mean, the amount of stuff that we're monitoring and doing from nutrition to sleep, constant glucose monitoring. I mean, you name it. I mean, what I do is very thorough and very complete in our process. So the first thing I do is I do something that I call a food awareness process with people. It's a bit of an annoying task for them, um, but it's very telling in what we do. So I basically have them write down every single thing they eat and drink for a couple of weeks. But I want them right before they eat, they have a sheet and they, they rank themselves on a one to five, one being terrible, five being feeling amazing, how they feel energy wise, how they feel mentally, how they feel emotionally, all these different buckets that I have that I want to know. So how do you feel? And then you eat something. And then an hour and a half later, you score yourself again in those same things. So, I, you know, do you feel bloated? Do you feel tired? Do you feel like you're foggy headed? Do you feel really focused? Like what happens, right? So I can start going through and finding patterns like, oh, when this person eats a lot of carbohydrates, they feel this way. Or this person eats a bunch of fats, they feel this way. Or protein, whatever, right? So we first try to pare down what makes them feel good mentally, physically, emotionally, right? And then the next part we do is once we get, and if they're not willing to do that, then we're wasting a lot of our time. And then once we get through that, then most of my guys, we do constant glucose monitoring. So we want to know what happens to the glucose levels based on what they eat, because obviously that's more important for the on-course piece. Not saying we don't care about it all the time. We do, but you're saying the person is at a good, healthy weight and all that stuff. So that's not a concern, whatever. But I do know that when I start having blood sugar spiking up and down while I'm on the course, we know that that glycogen and all that stuff is what we're using for brain activity, not just to walk the course and swing the club and all that stuff. It's what allows us to focus and keep our attention and do all of those things as well. So we start doing constant glucose monitoring, and then we start tracking how they react to different foods from a blood sugar perspective. And then what we try to do is when we're on the course, find what they can eat that keeps them in a steady, reasonable range. And what's incredible is once I started doing this a bunch of years ago, is I have players who can eat basically zero carbs unless they want to have a massive spike. Then I have other ones who can eat banana and Nutella and drink a Coke, and it barely moves. So what you learn is that, you know, we love to talk about nutrition and diet as a thing, but what you start learning when you truly start measuring is how bio-individual we each are and how differently we react to different foods, right? So what I try to do is actually figuring out what's the food for you, right? So I have players who basically can eat nuts and maybe a few dried fruit on the course, about the most carbs they can eat in or eating like keto-type bars. And I have other guys who can have bananas and, you know, or they can have a bag that's got nuts, dried fruit, or they can have an almond butter and whole wheat jelly sandwich on the course or whatever, right? Like we have different formulas for different people, but we're, we don't generally give general advice to anyone about anything. <laughs> um, because what I've, you know, again, like when you start seeing how dramatically different people are, you actually realize how dangerous or how false some of that can actually be. So when it comes to those players filling out those surveys and then trying to follow the guidelines on a go forward basis. What are some of the missteps that you've, but before they came to you, what are some of the missteps they realized that, you know, maybe they were making that now that they work with you, they're like, Oh, whoops. Didn't even realize that would be an issue. Like, and for example, I can not that, uh, like missteps I know I've made in life are kind of simple in the sense that like, I didn't realize I was gluten intolerant for a while. And then one time I, stopped eating gluten for a little bit. And I was like, wow, I, f I feel way better. I Life is different on the other side. Are there any consistent themes, I guess, is what I'm getting at with the mistakes they make? Yeah. Like, so like, I mean, that's, a, that's specific to you, right? There, I mean, I didn't, and if you did the process with me, I, we would see that, right? Every time that you ate something that had gluten, you would have written an hour and a half later that you felt terrible, right? I feel bloated. I feel like I'm mentally foggy, right? Whatever. Like we would have identified that through our process, right? But at the same time, I have players who will eat grilled chicken and steamed broccoli and feel terrible because there's not enough fat in it and they need more fat in their diet, right? So 
you can kind of get it everywhere. I mean, the one thing you learn is that the one thing that kills people the most is rice. While everybody likes rice, and rice is terrible. Like, I haven't had a person do a blood glucose test who doesn't get a beyond horrible response from any kind of rice. Like, my wife literally did it, and she's pretty good with carbs. So, like, in general, like, bread and pasta doesn't kill her, and she doesn't get massive spikes from that. I mean, she obviously gets a spike, but her body handles it well. It comes back down quickly, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, like, for her, I did a test with her. I was like, okay, you're a good carbohydrate person, so let's see what happens with you. I sent her to Dairy Queen for a hot fudge sundae on an empty stomach, and we monitored that. And then I sent her out for sushi rolls a different day on an empty stomach and monitored that. The sushi rolls were so much worse than the hot, the hot fudge sundae. It's a joke. And if you actually go start talking to diabetics, they'll tell you ice cream is way better for you than rice. That is crazy. What For our, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, explain what glucose spikes mean and why they might be bad in a given scenario. So glucose spikes means you just you know, eat something and no matter everything you eat, we ultimately break it down and process it into glycogen. And it's a different level of glycogen. Think about it, how much sugar basically is in your system. And obviously things that are sugary, you assume is going to spike you the most, a Coke, an ice cream, cake, you know, those type of things you think is going to give you that biggest spike. And you think your grilled chicken breast or whatever is going to give you your lowest spike. But again, people think of rice, oh, I had chicken and rice for lunch. That was good. Well, maybe not. Um, so what we're finding is that, so you can wear these glucose monitors. You see Rory wears one. It gets a little patch. They put it in their arm and it's constantly monitoring 24 hours a day, everything you eat. And like, it's not that we don't want it to go up. You are, it's supposed to go up and you're supposed to have an insulin response and all of those things, right, to manage it. And it's okay to go up. As long as your body can quickly say, oh, here's a spike. It could pump it out and get you back down to your normal base in a reasonable amount of time, it's not a problem. But we know that when we start getting above levels like 130, 140, it's creating an inflammatory response in our body. We know that inflammation is basically the base of all disease in the world, right? So if your body is going up way above that and it's staying up there a long time, we call it the exposure. Like what's your exposure to it? How much from baseline, how much did you go up? Okay, the, the higher you go up, the worse, obviously, right? But then more importantly almost is like, if you thought about it like on a graph, so it's like, oh, I was here, I ate, it went up to there. Well, but did it come right back down? The area under the curve is not very much. But if I go up and then I stay up for a long time and then come down, the area under the curve is a lot, right? So that means my exposure to an inflammatory state is really big. If I go up and come right back down, then my exposure to it is very small, right? So we're looking to avoid these big spikes that we can't downregulate quick enough and leaving these long-term exposures of inflammation within our system. Um, specifically, do you have an idea on why rice is so bad? It's a grain. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a processed grain. You know, even brown rice is a processed grain. And our body obviously has a hard time breaking it down and getting rid of it. So, I mean, I'm not a a microbiologist, I guess, or <laughs> whatever, who would be the one who can give you a better answer to that. But it's, you know, I've probably done glucose monitoring testing with 30 people. And, he, and some of them are good with carbs, some are bad with carbs, some whatever. But that seems to be pretty universal. If someone is listening to this and they're like, okay, I get the, I get glucose spikes are bad, but I, you know, I don't have a continuous glucose monitor. I haven't used any of that. What are some like, again, I know we don't talk much in generalities, but what are, are there feelings associated with a spike in glucose that lasts for a while and then where we have significant exposure? Is there like a bodily feeling generally that's yeah. associated with that? Well, or I think a lot very... of people who, yeah, I think people who don't handle it well tend to feel bloated after eating it. And I think they tend to feel like they get a bunch of energy right after eating it. And then eventually they have this massive crash and they want to take a nap after. You know, because I think you're, you're going two up and two down and that kind of you pump out all this energy. You, you get a lot of energy. You're like, like all jazzed up. Your energy is super high. And then all of a sudden you're like your body like pumps it all out. And you're like, Whew, I need a nap because like it was actually work for your body to manage it. And then your body's like, OK, that was a big bodily function for me to take care of. So now I need a little rest to recover. Right. Just like you would from training. Right. You need to work hard and then recover. Well, that's hard work for the body. 
if you're sensitive to it. That makes sense. Switching gears a little bit, as you said, you've worked with a lot of players, uh, a lot of top players. What are some of the things that you've learned working with them? It's a long list. You know, I, I think when you look at the best of the best, the most important element is discipline. They really have serious, serious discipline. You know, I always tell the guys when I start new with a new player is like, the worst part of being a professional golfer is freedom. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what do you mean freedom? I'm like, well, if you played for the Yankees, they'll tell you when you have to go work out. They're going to tell you what time you're going to practice. They're going to give you a coach. They're going to give you a trainer. And you have basically no choice but to get up and go to work every day. Right? They have a schedule and you have to be there. As a golfer, let's just say it's non-tournament week or it is a tournament, whatever. You don't have to get up in the morning. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to go practice. You don't have to do anything. You can be like, oh, my girlfriend, my wife, I got this today. I got that today. I'm going to go you know, to the supermarket. I'm going to go take the dog for a walk. Like, you're not obligated to do anything, and there's no one there who can make you. You are the team or the, whatever, the business, however you want to you think about it. And like the, one of the things I try to tell my guys is like if you really want to be successful, and the guys that I've worked with who are the most successful, and I've had some guys who actually go through periods where they're great, and then they're not so great, and then they're great again, and then they're not so great, and the results correspond perfectly to it, right? But I tell guys, I go like, if you think about your job, like if you work for an insurance company or you work for a bank or you work for a law firm or whatever, the alarm gets all, goes off in the morning. You go to work. There's no like, hey, I'm not going to work today. I'm not going to do it. It's like, no, no. Ding, ding. The bell rings and it's time to go. And I'm like, you need to, especially on your off weeks, like be like, okay, I work from nine to five. I'm going to go to the gym at nine to 11. I'm going to get some shower. I'm going to change. I'm going to have lunch. I'm going to get to the course by one. I'm going to be at the course from one to five. I'm going to, you know, hit balls. I'm going to go chip. I'm going to go play nine holes, whatever. Right. And you have an actual like routine and a plan. And the guys who are the best are the best at that. They don't find themselves getting distracted. And I'm not saying they never take time off, but it's like anybody who has a job in a law office or bank, they have a week of vacation. So they take a week of vacation, they go chillax, they take their time off, they unwind, they mentally get a break, physically get a break, whatever. And then it's like, okay, now I'm back to work. And they go back on that following Monday or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, you ring the bell again and now you go back to work. And the other thing is I think the best players, and I think Sean Foley said it this way, I thought was the best that I've ever heard is, the best players learn to have a passion for the minutia, right? Just like, like say they're working on putting and just hitting it perfectly off the sweet spot of the putter face on the slight upstroke or whatever, like they can feel it and they can sit there and do thousands of balls and, and they're trying to find this millimeter difference and they learn to love, it's the most boring, tedious thing in the world for most of us. The great players, they learn to have a passion for that and love that little detailed minutia work because that's the difference between being top 10, top 50 in the world or being 400th. Obviously everyone can play. Everyone's talented out there. The difference is little stuff. For players who are playing at that highest level, I know we're coming up on time, so we'll head to wrap soon, but for players who are playing at that highest level, and again, I know we don't talk that much in generalities, but we talked about sort of a macro cycle and micro cycle for workouts, et cetera, where maybe over an off season, we might be doing more than we are whatever off season we have than we are in season in a cycle of a tournament week. And let's say we have healthy player, just like I described earlier, healthy player, not trying to do too much as far as making any large changes, generally mobile enough, just trying to add a little bit of strength. What does a tournament week again? If you can, if you if you can, yeah, even yeah. Get I there think there's some general foundations. Like. Yeah. So most of our guys, my guys, whatever, and I think this is most guys on tour in general. I think would say this. So typically on the tour, the tour trailer, which is where most of us work out on tournament weeks, is not there on Mondays. That's the travel day, right? Because the, the trailers at the event on Sunday. Once everybody, the last warm ups are completed, then they pack up the truck and they have to drive it to a new location. So generally, Mondays are travel days for most people, right? Because you're playing until Sunday afternoon, whatever the case may be, travel day on Monday. Tuesday, the trailer is packed. That is your day to get in your, you know, because you're not going to get a ton of lifting in and your heavy strength work in, that's heavy day, right? 
or power day or big force day, right? So Tuesdays is the biggest gym day from almost everybody who's like a real workout person on tour because that still gives them two days before they really have to play to kind of get their body back kind of going. And then obviously Wednesday is usually pro-am day. And then obviously we teeing it off on Thursday. So maybe on Wednesday, if you did a hard lift on Tuesday, you might be doing a bit more mobility type work, a little bit of stability work. You might be doing some soft tissue. Maybe you have a massage therapist out there with you or Cairo or whatever. You're dealing with that kind of still doing some work, but I'll call it more recovery based than intensity based. Then for most guys, we're going to try to get another strength day in at some point here but we're gonna bring the intensity down a little bit and the volume down a little bit. And we're typically gonna do that on whatever day is our early day, Thursday or Friday, right? So if I play early Thursday, I get up, I do my warm ups. After my round, I grab something to eat. Maybe I'm gonna hit some balls or not, depends. And then I'm gonna to go to the gym and I'm gonna do 45 minutes. But I'm gonna do my more of my strength-based work that day, like I said, but it, with intensity and volume brought down a little bit. Because there's no way to do that. You know, you're not going to do that right before you're round, and you're not, and it's going to be too late after your late day. So most people, afternoon after their early round, is a big fitness day. And then a lot of my guys tend to, especially depending on what time their tea time is on their late day, is we'll kind of take their warm up on the late day. Let's say you're taking off at one thirty. Most of these guys are up at eight o'clock in the morning. They're not sleeping in until a. 12 o'clock. And the, the worst thing for them is they get bored sitting around waiting. So I'll be like, hey, when you get up at eight, why don't you go have some breakfast? I'll meet you at the trailer at 10 and we'll do some work. But we're going to do, again, more of like a mobility stability type program and then roll that right into our warm up. Right. Which may still have a little bit of strength stuff, you know, in it and or maybe some little plyo, some like neural driver stuff within it, but we kind of take their warm up, which maybe let's say typically is 30 minutes, 45 minutes. We may go to the gym for an hour and a half just to kill time and just do a bunch of mobility, you know, foam roll for 15, 20 minutes and then do some stretching and then do some core work and then, you know, whatever. And that way they're not sitting around watching golf on TV and not getting bored and laying around just makes you tired. Right. So like, it's like get up and do something with your day. Right? So then you go from there. And then obviously it depends on what happens over the weekend, if you make the cut or whatever. But I think most guys' week looks something similar to that. I've heard some people talk about foam rolling and other things like that and say that not necessarily they're, that they're placebo, but the effects maybe on recovery, et cetera, are not significant. What is you, What have you seen in your experience and from your data on things like Theraguns or foam rolling or something of that nature. I don't I don't think that they're like long-term fixes per se, if you have something really wrong. Right. But at the end of the day, what do they do? They're bringing blood flow to the area, all that, right? They're, they're moving the tissues around like a massage would. Not it quite as good, obviously, but on that idea, you're you're moving the fascia, you're you're pumping lymph, you're bringing blood flow to the area, doing that stuff. Look, there's 50 million people a day who foam roll and love it and feel better. So, you know, you can tell me about all the science you want. I mean, the amount of people who do it and feel better is pretty overwhelming. And when I say 50 million, that's probably a small number. Worldwide, it's probably much bigger than that. And why is it that when people start foam rolling and everything kills them and hurts and their range seems shorter, if they're consistent, right? The problem is most people, they hear that and they just stop doing it. It's like, well, does anybody have a study following people who foam rolled for five years? Show me that study. Well, there is no study that has that, right? So I do think that consistency of tissue work over time. And again, like, and what are we looking at? Are we looking at muscular strength? What, like, what, what does that mean it works? How do you define that? Did I improve quality of blood flow? Did I improve fascial elasticity? Like, what does that even mean, right? So like a lot of these questions, I always ask people like, uh, explain to me what you even mean by your answer that it doesn't work, right? Like there's no, there's no research that says massage works. Zero. Man, almost every tour player in the world's got one. And I work with a lot of guys. And I think that the real magic is that in and of themselves, they're not going to make a big change that's going to be lasting. They're going to, you're going to feel good for a little while and then it's going to go away. But if I'm trying to do something to get like improve range of motion, let's just say I rolled my lats and I'm looking at shoulder flexion as an example, right? 
If I roll my lats, it loosens up the tissues a bit and my range increases. And now maybe I can do a stability or strength exercise in a new position. Well, I will eventually get the benefit of it. And if I didn't do the rolling or the stretching in that situation, maybe I still was only in this position and I wouldn't end up here as an example. I do believe having just anecdotal evidence for 30 years working with guys who do both, do one, do the other, that the combination is better than either by themselves. That's perfect. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us. The last question we ask every guest is the same, and that is, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Good question. Don't listen to your parents. I mean, seriously, you know, I have had a junior academy for years, and a lot of the things that's put kids on bad paths comes from their parents because parents think they know something, but they don't know anything. And, you know, you, you know, whatever, you're a lawyer, I wouldn't dare give you, I wouldn't dare, you know, if my kid said to become a lawyer and he needed advice, I would send it to someone who's a lawyer. I wouldn't send them to some guy who does accounting and take his advice on being a lawyer, right? So it's like these parents act like they're experts. They think that they're experts, when in reality, they know very little. And, you know, what I would say to those kids is surround yourself with people who actually have real knowledge and ask your parents nicely that, hey, your job is to be my biggest cheerleader, my biggest support structure, my biggest fan and the financier of my (laughs) my career. But that in reality, let's just find people who are actually experts, because that's basically when you have a medical problem, you go to the doctor. When you have a legal problem, you go to the lawyer. You know, it's like you have a golf problem. You don't go to mom. But yet mom's got a lot of opinions. So, I mean, I think that's my most important. That is true. We appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media or on your website? Yeah. I mean, you can find me on Instagram at ben.shear, S-H-E-A-R. Post mostly there. I have a bunch of other ones, but I'm phasing them all out. I'm going to start putting everything there. And it's basically a lot of hockey and golf content. I don't put a lot of my personal stuff on there. I mean, I'm on Facebook as well, but I tend to put more just like, you know, fun personal stuff on there. So if you want to be friends, I mean, okay, you can hit me up on there. But if you like want to see exercises and stuff going on in the other spaces, then Instagram at Ben.Shears best. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there as well uh, if you want to ask some questions or whatever. Awesome. Be sure to check out Ben's stuff. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get out to more people, helps more people learn about how to play better tournament golf. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you joining us, diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 